Welcome to Feed the Feminine, a podcast dedicated to reviving archetypal feminine qualities in a masculine-dominated culture. I'm your host, Vanessa Sedaticato, a psychotherapist and writer empowering clients and readers to nourish their feminine while also repairing what's been damaged in its long-standing cultural repression. Join me each episode as we talk about the archetypes present in how we eat, express, and relate, and what we can do to find meaning and reach balance. On this episode, I'm talking about depression and how the collective repression of the feminine may be influencing depressive ways of being. As always, before we dive in, a quick disclaimer. The information provided here is intended to convey general information only and does not intend to replace or infer proper psychological diagnosis. No therapist-client relationship is implied or actualized through any contact with this podcast, website, or its creators unless formally agreed upon in a proper clinical setting. And now, without further ado, here's this week's episode of the Feed the Feminine podcast. So I recently posted something on Instagram that says, One response to the collective oppression of the feminine is to comply and repress our own feminine within. Another response is to rebel like mad, kill our own masculine, and overfeed our feminine. Neither response heals us. Before I unpack that, I just want to revisit some key points about the hungry feminine that informs this perspective. A reminder, essentially. Uh, You may get tired of hearing this, but I think it's important to to keep uh, reiterating. When I discuss the masculine and feminine in this space, it's not about gender. It's about archetypal energy that exists in all things. We all have a feminine and a masculine within us. We just tend to have one that dominates the other a little bit more. People who tend to be more emotionally attuned, creative, imaginative, daydreamy, spiritual, mindful, essentially the right brain folks, we tend to be stronger in the feminine. Those who are more left brain, concerned with logic, taking action, uh, putting things in order, strategizing, um, concerned with the physical world, they're stronger in their masculine. I know many women who are dominant in their masculine, and I know many men who are dominant in their feminine. So we have to look beyond gender when we're having this conversation. That's for us and for the collective. So I think sometimes people get a little bit guarded and they feel like, well, because they're a female, then they they are supposed to be stronger in their feminine. That is not what this is about. And the more room we have for acceptance of that, the easier this conversation becomes and the easier really everything (laughs) after that becomes. Uh, So at a cultural level, we see repression of feminine traits nearly everywhere. In capitalism and politics, we prioritize money, consumption. We're constantly fighting class warfare. We tell artists to go get a real job. We laugh at the people who are being spiritual. We yell at those who are slowing their pace. And we tell them to hurry up and be more productive. Really, I think one of the best ways to just see simply how we repress the feminine is the way we treat mothers who breastfeed this this whole thing that has been going on these last couple of years the conversation that's been entering the mainstream about breastfeeding has just been blowing my mind we are so disgusted by the natural nurturance that comes from women's breasts that we moralize breastfeeding we demonize women trying to feed their children in public as though they're doing something obscene because our cultural education says the only way we want to see breasts is when we can acquire them for pleasure 
for masculine-driven purposes, but their feminine purpose, to feed and nurture, ew, gross, I'm offended, arrest her. So now going back to that Instagram post about two, the two responses that we may have, or two of the responses that we may have individually to the collective repression of the feminine. The two ways that I described, either complying and repressing our own feminine or rebelling and repressing our own masculine, the reason they're not the path to healing is because they keep us enacted in extremes. So in the former, when we repress our own individual feminine, we have bought into the cultural mythology that says feminine qualities are bad, weak, sinful, silly, and so on. We've introjected that messaging, and now we believe it. So when our individual feminine within us speaks up, we tell her to go away. And so that's going to show up in our behavior in different ways. In some cases, that repression can result in eating disorders or other addictions. It can result in self-harm. And yes, it can show up in depressed mood that we may experience because we're prohibiting a part of ourselves from existing. It's like if you consistently tell a child to pipe down and stop being so unapologetically themselves because they're annoying or they're nothing but trouble, that child is going to feel really sad and isolated and like they don't know how to be themselves while still being accepted by others. You're really going to blow out the flame of that child if you, if, you, if you teach it that over time. And that's essentially what we're doing when we are repressing our feminine based on that cultural mythology. And being accepted by others is critical for us as humans. It's a natural need to be included. Our self-esteem is informed by our inclusion. So if there's something about you that has been widely rejected by the society in which you live, you may hide that part so that you can fit in. But then who are you? You don't know. Also, when we react by repressing our own individual feminine, that means that we are giving full reign to the masculine. And the masculine, for all of its strengths, is not so good with the empathy or the compassion. And this is where the whole, like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, buck up and get over it kind of narrative comes into play. It's the whole, there's no crying in baseball kind of thing, where when you do feel emotional, the only part of you that's left has no idea what to do with that. It finds emotions to not be very valuable or informative, so you start speaking to yourself through that masculine lens and you start talking to your own emotional experience as though it's a problem, as though it's a bad thing, as though it's a flaw, something that needs to be fixed, something you've got to get over rather than something that needs a little bit of love and nurturance and exploration in order to transform into something positive for you. So now we're suppressing, we're stopping the emotion before it can really go anywhere and we're saying stop it this is ridiculous. There's no space for this. Go go do something about it rather than feel anything. And anytime we invalidate our own emotions, we're setting ourselves up for depression because there's an aching part within us and we're telling ourselves that we're bad for having that ache. And so not only is there something inherently isolating about that, but it becomes abusive to our whole emotional system. And then we start to lose trust with our own selves and our own feelings. And there's this whole broken down communication system within us that's really hard to navigate because there's no objectivity there. When you react the second way, where you actually overfeed your feminine and in an act of total rebellion and even perhaps disgust, repress your own masculine, you're not going to heal that way either. So part of the reason I say disgust is because when we don't have balance, 
when we're in extremes, and I've said this before, but it's worth mentioning again, extremes lead us to the shadow side of things. Where masculine light is positive and helpful, masculine shadow is greed and war. So when you don't have that balance, when you don't have the masculine and feminine checking each other, and there's only one calling all of the shots, just like when anything is the one sole ruler, their dark side starts to come out. You start to see the things about them that are like, oh no, you've got a shadow, right? So so the shadow stuff starts to come out because there's no balance. There's nothing checking it. So when we look at the collective, in American culture at least, where the feminine is repressed and the masculine is in power, what we are mostly seeing, at least the stuff that catches our attention and sucks us into like the 24-hour news cycle, that's the masculine shadow. It's the gross stuff. It's the violence. It's the hatred. It's the theft. It's the arguments. It's the supremacy. It's the fight for power. So we start to think that that's all the masculine is and we start to despise it and we want to kill it off within ourselves. I want nothing to do with that. It's so out of line with my values and who I am naturally as a person and I want to murder that inside of me, which we can't do really anyway. We just end up harming ourselves as a whole, but then that just puts the feminine in charge. And when the feminine is all that controls within the individual the feminine shadow is now what's going to be what comes out. And the feminine shadow is where you're likely to find another iteration of depression because there's nothing to balance out the emotions. There's no boundaries to make relationships safe. Codependency arrives here. Passive aggressive communication takes over, which indicates that there's a lack of self-agency, that we can no longer speak up for ourselves and make an impact. So we have to make small remarks here and there or just engage passive aggressively which then perpetuates feelings of resentment. And we start to feel like without the approval of somebody else, we're worthless. Which you can hear in that is, is is a depressive narrative. So if we take that a little bit further and we look at behavioral signs of excess, we can understand this, I think, even more deeply. So I'm going to go into a place of behavior and personality before taking us back to mood and the depression that we can experience as a result of this. The behavioral signs of masculine excess, meaning you have shut down your feminine and masculine is just out of control. You're going to experience insomnia, restlessness, anger and irritability, a lack of empathy, violence, grandiosity, a need for constant stimulation, and maybe even some impulsive behaviors. An impulsive means you're sort of acting without thinking, without considering the consequence. Behavioral signs of the feminine excess are hypersomnia, meaning you're sleeping a lot, low energy, excessive guilt, apathy, lack of motivation, over or under eating, weight gain or weight loss, and compulsive behaviors, which is less about spontaneity and urgency like impulsive, but it's repeated over and over again despite consequences. So now if you're a therapist or a social worker, or if you're somebody who's familiar with the DSM, which is the Uh, American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic Manual, you may realize that those behavioral signs start to sound like diagnostic criteria. Masculine excess can start to read a little bit like mania or like narcissistic personality, whereas feminine excess reads as depressive. And what's interesting to me in that discovery is that depression has an interesting relationship with both mania and narcissism. So 
I feel like this is really going to hit for the psych nerds like me, but I think anybody can get into this. And I want to be clear that just because I am using diagnostic language, it does not mean that I am diagnosing anybody. In fact, I'm using the diagnostic language to widen the lens, not narrow it. There's a difference between mood disorders and personality disorders. Usually when we talk about depression, we're talking about a mood disorder. And usually when we're talking about mania, we're talking about how it seesaws with depression in those with bipolar disorder, which is also a mood disorder. Narcissism, however, it can arise in other ways, but it's typically referred to by its personality disorder. What a lot of people don't know is that depressive personality disorder was a diagnosis in the DSM-4, which was the version of the diagnostic manual just before the current one that's out right now. And the depressive personality disorder was marked for further study and essentially removed in the latest version of the DSM. You can still technically diagnose with it as personality disorder not otherwise specified, but as its own living, breathing, autonomous diagnosis, it has been removed. I think a lot of clinicians feel like dysthymia or persistent depressive disorder, which is another mood disorder, can replace depressive personality disorder. But I think that's actually really unfortunate because mood and personality organization are different. And the distinctions, I think, are really critical in understanding this. For one thing, a personality disorder comes from personality organization. We all have personality organizations. It's essentially the scaffolding that we build ourselves on. Your personality organization only becomes disordered when you are completely rigid in your behaviors. You're completely unaware of your behaviors and the impact that they have on your life and the people in your life. And your defense mechanisms are mostly primitive compared with more mature defense mechanisms. For another thing, even though it's no longer an official diagnosis in the DSM, depressive personalities need representation. It needs to be a part of the conversation that mood is not the only place depression shows up, that the way we see the world and organize ourselves in response to it can be depressive at its core, regardless of mood. In other words, you can be euphemic in the moment and still be a depressive. Now, when you have a depressive personality, you can also have a manic personality because there's room for that seesaw again. So essentially there's like a personality organization that mimics bipolar disorder, but it's less about mood and more about, again, your understanding of the world and how you need to respond to it. It is my belief through my personal experiences and observations that those who are in excess of their feminine are more likely to have depressive personality organizations. And this can be further perpetuated when the culture rejects the feminine because depressives already have a lot of self-doubt. They feel bad. They feel sinful. They feel incompetent. So cultural rejection can further drive that home. A former instructor of mine from graduate school, his name is Matthew Bennett. He wrote a book, still yet to be released, I believe, with an artist friend of his named Lee McCluskey. And The work itself is called The Hieroglyph of the Human Soul. I think that's the name of it, which I think is also the name of um, (laughs) this really awesome second floor library in Lee's home where he painted this stellar mural, which encompasses the whole room. It's like the ceiling, the floor, the furniture, it's all painted. And you're just, you're like floating in the cosmos. The whole thing is a trip. You just, it's, it's incredible in there. Anyway, um, the two of them together, the, the works that they, that they, we're putting out. They explore the archetypal patterns in personality organizations. And as part of their work, they created this grid that helps us conceptualize how 
socialization and early life experiences can develop our personality structure. So in other words, what we experience both interpersonally in our younger developmental ages or years with family and the people closest to us, but also how we are socialized, how typically a lot of times based on our gender, um, but but also based on our, our community, our socioeconomic status, on, on all sorts of boxes that we check off, what ex- what expectations we are held to. And so I won't get too into the specifics of the grid, but on this grid, the narcissist and the depressive are directly across from one another, as though they are the same but opposite. So remember, we're talking about the narcissist because behavioral signs of masculine excess read like mania or narcissistic personality, while the behavioral signs of feminine excess read like depression or depressive personality. So I'm just trying to navigate, like, right, how does this show up in our behavior and how does that impact our mood or how, how is that a separate thing? Both the narcissist and the depressive are self-focused. For the narcissist, it's about how they avoid shame by increasing their value through external conquests. Like, look at this beautiful girl that I'm dating. Look at this fancy car that I'm driving. Listen to all of my famous friends talk about how great I am. The depressive is more like, please don't look at me. Why is everybody looking at me? I'm going to mess this up or I'm doing something wrong and people are going to notice. They're going to notice that everything that I've ever said is a lie and that I'm actually an imposter and I don't belong here and I don't actually know anything that I'm talking about. It's still very much like it's about me and everybody is seeing me, but with a completely different narrative. A depressive always wants forgiveness. They carry around this constant fear of doing something immoral, making a mistake. I've talked about this in previous episodes, right? That me as somebody who is in excess of my feminine somebody who has struggled with an eating disorder, somebody who has experienced codependent relationships. I'm a depressive. I've said it before. I'll always own it because to me, owning that helps me understand myself. It helps me recognize that when I engage in behaviors that don't give me the desired outcome, I get to look at that and say, okay, this makes sense because as a depressively organized person, I am under the influence of this. I am expecting this. And so I mean, I'm behaving to create this outcome. But Now that I can be a little bit objective about it and kind to myself about it, I can recognize, I can check the facts on that and realize that that's not actually true. That something in there is broken down and I've got to troubleshoot that instead of letting it take over and control my behavior and my life. Depressives are too busy being self-critical that they tend to give others like too much of the benefit of the doubt. And so they attach to others easily, sometimes too easily, but are still really sensitive to anything that is perceived as criticism. So sometimes that can make those attachments feel hurtful or toxic. This is the feminine shadow, this boundaryless intimacy, this giving away your power to somebody else to validate you, this judgment that we have towards self that is so self-critical, that is looking for every mistake that we're going to make, this need to be in control and be perfect at all times. That is the feminine shadow. And that matches up with the depressive. I'm not saying it's always the case, but I'm not going to ignore the connections between them. A narcissist struggles to love. They're blocked from it. So they perform in a way to receive validation instead. Sometimes they accomplish this through domination, through power, through self-assurance. They could become predators. Because if they're not winning, then they have to face how empty they are and why. In narcissistic behavior, you can sense that every action is a direct avoidance of the depression that will come from a lifetime accumulation of shame. 
this is the masculine shadow, this domination, this power, this, this cut off from emotionality and instead projecting out the need to conquer others, the need to take over and find your prey to be in control of. And depression's relationship with mania, whether it's in a depressed mood or in a depressive personality, is also really interesting because in some ways the mania tries to be a savior. It's almost like, have no fear, I will pull you out of this depression. And the deeper the depression, the more urgent the need for the mania. So it shows up like a bat out of hell as another means, like narcissism, of avoiding depression. So I will say that in addition to keeping an eye out for that Matthew Bennett, Lee McCluskey book, I will also recommend for clinicians and really anybody who's really interested in what I'm talking about to pick up uh, Nancy McWilliams book, Psychoanalytic Diagnosis. It is one of the greatest books that I continue to consult regularly when it comes to my clients or just even understanding myself. And she incorporates the depressive and the manic personalities into her work, which is rare. And there's just so much juicy goodness in there. So depressed mood. Now, depression as we know it is as, as a mood, not necessarily as a personality organization in terms of the way that you understand the world and behave in it, but just mood, right? That can just kind of wash over you. It's like an existential ache. It's a heavy ache and it creates numbness. Like when you're holding something heavy for too long and your arms start to go limp, it's, it's that. It's, it's a fatigue. It's a cloudy fatigue. It creates an absence of things, an absence of purpose, passion, desire, curiosity, hope. It creates an inability to see the future, an inability to connect, an inability to recognize goodness in oneself or in the world. Like all things, this exists on a spectrum. So not all depression can be negotiated with, like how I'm outlining here. But finding meaning in my depression was one of the most life-changing experiences that I have ever had. And I believe looking at it through the lens of masculine and feminine can do that. It can help find meaning because it helps inform us about what we're actually grieving for. Because if we don't know, then it exists as this depression. I mean, how many times for those for those of us who've experienced depression, we we have that morning where we wake up and it's like, I can't. I can't do it. I cannot do all of the things. I, I can't even get out of bed. I just want to stay in my little womb of a bed and this is where I exist forever. Or you're putting on a face to go out there and pretend that you're happy so that you're surviving and you're going through the motions and nobody knows that your heart's on fire. We have these internal conversations with ourselves about why do I feel like this? It doesn't make sense. I'm depressed and I don't know why. Well, because depression isn't sadness. Depression isn't something where you can clearly say, okay, this is the thing that triggered this. I'm having, a, I'm having an emotional response to X, Y, and Z that happened. Depression, it, it exists in this lower level of our psyche where unconscious things are. And so if we can make those unconscious things conscious, that's where the meaning comes from. Now, okay, I understand. There is actually a reason for this. And it's not as obvious as if I was grieving the death of somebody that I loved, but once I make room for how complex we are as human beings and how important our unconscious material is to our conscious existence, oh my God, well, now it's, now it's making sense. I understand why I feel this way. 
I've always been a very self-aware person. I would describe myself as a highly sensitive person. I'm an empath. I learn through my emotions. I perceive through my emotions. And this this can create a lot of different types of vulnerabilities for me. But one of one of those vulnerabilities is that I'm hyper aware of everything. And being hyper aware of everything can really clue you into where things don't fit. And sometimes having that knowledge is a burden because you're seeing things that other people maybe aren't. And that's why they're able to just kind of go about their day and be happy. Meanwhile, I'm sitting here fixated on something's wrong and I can see it and I can feel it. And why does nobody else see it or feel it? But it was when I recognized the function of my depression in all of that, that I gained back my power over it. And that's not to say that depression still does not kick my ass because it absolutely does, but it doesn't with the same intensity or frequency that it has in the past. And depression is something that I've struggled with my entire life, but I didn't really recognize it until I was 21 and I experienced a major depressive episode in college. This was the first time I ever experienced this and I completely shut myself in for five days. I had no human interaction except that I would IM my friends. I am. Listen to me talk like it's 2000. (laughs) I would IM my friends. I would instant message them through AIM. You guys know what I'm talking about. Uh, I would say just enough to strategically keep them away from me, to explain my absence. I mean, it was it was distorted because it wasn't even a conscious thing. It was just like I had an instinct that took over that said, I need to isolate. My depression needs to hold me hostage right now. And so in order for that to be successful, I can't have anybody knocking on the door or calling me or looking for me. So how do I just keep them away from me just enough to let them know that everything's okay, but I need some space? Whatever that was, that was happening for me. It was happening. I was sending my friends messages because I sensed that they were concerned and I didn't want them to be concerned because they would take me out of it. And There is something about the depression that is like, no, I need to hold you captive for myself, which means nobody can know that this is happening. Apart from that, I saw nobody. I spoke to nobody. I ate no food. I was bailing on class. I was bailing on work. I was not letting anybody know that I wasn't coming in for my shifts. I hardly slept. And when I did sleep, the only way that I could sleep was by blasting music in my headphones Because that was the only way that I could silence the ruminating, abusive self-talk that was running rampant through my mind, that was screaming at me inside of my own head. I had suicidal thoughts constantly, but I was so numb and depleted and in this black fog that I had no agency to execute any of my plans. And it was a tough I mean, tough. I mean, that's like an understatement. I don't even know how I survived that. Uh, And the truth is that, I mean, there's a longer story here and perhaps I'll tell it, but I had a little bit of a miracle happen and I got out of it and I got my ass immediately into a therapist's office for the first time in my life. And it took another probably 10 years for me after that experience to get to know my depression in a completely different way. And it wasn't until recently, a couple of years ago, that I recognized that my depression is actually some kind of an alert system to tell me when I am not being true to myself. It is this thing that comes up that says you are repressing what are the most important, valued, cherished qualities that you have. 
You are playing the role of somebody else in order to fit in. And you are killing yourself by doing that existentially, psychically. It, it lets me know that I am prioritizing conformity over myself, that I'm trying to make friends just so that I'm not alone. But then I realize the friendships are meaningless because it's a false me who's showing up in them. My depression tells me that the world, as I know it, struggles to make sense of me. That I am a feminine person in a masculine world, an introvert in an extrovert's world, a feeler in a thinker's world, a nocturnal creature in a morning person's world. And so what do I have to be excited about when everything about me says I don't belong, when I'm constantly not fitting into, again, going back to the idea of inclusion and where our self-esteem comes from. If the, the qualities about me are rejected at large, then I don't fit in. I am not included. What does that tell me about my self-esteem? It tells me that I'm not good enough. That's what that's what the depressive narrative is. But when you when you look when you see it that way, you say, wait a minute. But that doesn't actually mean that there's something wrong with me. That whole idea of my worth is now challenged. That's that's bogus now. I can see it because yes, the society at large rejects a lot of the the best qualities about myself. That's first of all, that's not for me to take personally. It's not about me specifically. Second of all, there's a sub-community of people out there who are just like me. There are introverts and feelers and feminine people who are also struggling and feeling like they are also getting rejected from society. And it's my job to go find them. And those are my friends. Those are my people. That's my community. That's where I get included. So it's not about actually my self-worth. It's just that the filter system that I have in my mind is taking the fact that society rejects the feminine to mean that society rejects me and I feel that but I've also got to check the facts on that and realize it's not personal and that who I am as a person is not determined by that my worth is not determined by that and in fact the more I reconnect to myself my true self the more power I get back in this now, I want to say, of course, I speak with immense privilege still, because even though I have never actually felt represented in our culture in any meaningful way, as a, and I mean like a deep spiritual way, but as a white, able-bodied, cis person, loosely of the religious majority in America, at least by tradition, I am the most represented person there is. But this is just my story, the voice of my depression and my loneliness. And once I recognized that my depression was not about me and how shitty I was, but that I had internalized a negative narrative about myself from a world that is struggling with its own identity crisis and doesn't know how to love or connect or nurture itself meaningfully, that's when my depression stopped being my enemy. We hurt when the feminine is not present. We ache because qualities of the feminine are our most natural instincts. Not instincts of war or protection, those are instincts, but instincts of peace, connectivity, spirituality, life itself. The feminine takes us beyond our skin and bones and allows us to reach our higher power. It allows us to reach other human beings beyond just chatter. The feminine gives us those experiences in life that are indescribable, that we can't quantify. The ones that make us feel like we are most alive and, and charged with some sort of energy. So without that, 
things start to feel hollow. But those individuals who respond to the cultural repression of the feminine with an almost rebellious exaggeration of the feminine within themselves, they're going to become so free with their emotions that there's not going to be any boundaries and they're going to get flooded. So, so people in excess of feminine, there's going to be a depression there too. They're going to become emotionally overwhelmed. I'm somebody who's always been dominant in my feminine, and I was always described as being a sensitive and emotional person as though that made me weak. And I believed that that made me weak for a long time. Now I find my sentimentality and my emotionality to be my biggest strengths. But I do admit that I can get too much into my emotional self for too long or to too many extremes, and then nothing makes sense to me anymore. And my depression just takes me right out. DBT, uh, dialectical behavioral therapy, it's a modality of therapy that's actually very masculine in and of itself because it's structured. It's a linear way of thinking. There's a lot of acronyms. It's a lot of A plus B equals C. And it's helpful, I think, for that reason. It takes the feminine nature of psychotherapy, a science that is not quantitative or measurable, the study of the human psyche, and it adds a little bit of step-by-step linear structure through which to understand the self and take action to do something different than what you normally do. Now, you have to use it wisely, but it can be helpful because of the balance that it helps create. There's a concept in DBT that we all have an emotion mind and a rational mind, but that they cannot operate individually because if you're too much in emotion mind, you're going to be really reactive behaviorally. And maybe you're going to say or do ineffective things that you're going to regret later. But if you're too much in your rational mind, you're going to be cold and distant and emotionless. And that's going to make closeness or connectivity with, relate- with other people in relationship. It's going to make that really difficult. But DBT says that the two states of mind need to inform each other. They need to communicate. And when they do, when a balance is struck, what you get is wise mind. So this, indi- this indication that when you merge emotion and reason, you gain wisdom. It's a very modern masculine incarnation of the principles of the yin and yang. It's about balance. So the feminine is the emotion mind and the masculine is the rational mind. Too much of one, not enough of the other leads to discontentment, suffering. So then I guess the question becomes, what can we do with all of this information? So for one thing, I think we can just start increasing our awareness of our mood, naming depression when it arrives, if we don't already, and getting to know ourselves in relationship to the masculine and feminine. So as you've been listening along in this episode, you have likely heard yourself being spoken about at one point or another. When? When did you hear yourself represented in what I explained? When I spoke about masculine excess, when I spoke about feminine excess, understand which one you are dominant in. And then once you realize that, the more important piece is to ask yourself with kindness and curiosity, what is your relationship to the less dominant one within you? I've spoken before about how I am absolutely the second, my response to the cultural repression of the feminine was the second option. It was the one where I killed my internal masculine and overfed my feminine. And it wasn't until I realized that, till I, till I saw an image of both of them and drew them, that I realized I had really, really destroyed my masculine. He was falling apart. And my, my feminine was absolutely out of control. And that explained for me why there was so much imbalance within me. 
So the one that is not dominant, what is your relationship like with that one? Are you angry at that one? Are you afraid of that one? Are you being cruel to it? Do you starve it? And if you do, how can you feed it instead? So I have some tips on uh, my blog. There's a piece called How to Feed a Healthy Feminine and Masculine. Uh, and you can access that at thehungryfeminine.com backslash blog. And that can be a good starting point for you. But recognizing that when it comes to depressed mood, whether or not you are a depressive personality, depending on your dominant traits, something can be done. If you are an excess of feminine, you need some boundaries. You need to check the facts of your feelings. In other words, are you responding to something real or something assumed? Has your emotion mind taken off without you? Is it now out there collecting data that is just based on your own self-worth and how you feel about yourself? In other words, we can collect data. As human beings, we want to be right about everything. And so once we have a core belief, which could be, I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy of love, right? That's our belief, which we accumulated at a, at a younger time in our lives. But we don't know that it isn't true. And we believe that that is fact. So now we go out into the world and every interaction that we have, well, there's more evidence that I'm not worthy of love. There's more evidence that I'm not worthy of love. There's more evidence that I'm not worthy of love. We collect data just to back up a faulty principle that we are living our lives based on. So when you are in, an, in a, a swell of emotion, are you responding to something that actually happened? Or are you responding to the way you're perceiving something, which is just validating some negative, horrible feelings that you have about yourself? So check the facts. Ask yourself, what is fact here? And what is assumption? What actually happened? I will always give this example. It's like a really quick example when I'm leading groups and I talk about this. If somebody in the group gives me a, a look that I perceive to be a dirty look, I could take that and run with it and say, oh my God, this person thinks that I'm an idiot, that I don't know what I'm talking about. I should shut up and stop talking and go crawl in a hole somewhere. What are the facts of the situation? The facts of the situation are simply that somebody looked at me. Giving value to the way that they looked at me and then what that means about how they feel about me, all of that I made up in my head. And it doesn't mean that it's crazy or wrong. It's, it's a truth within myself that needs a little bit of love and care and, and rectifying. But it's not objectively true. And so before I react to that and say, this person hates me, I have to say, wait a minute, all they did was look at me this way. And the rest of it was something that my mind made up in order to protect myself, but something that's faulty nonetheless. So when we're in an abundance of, of emotion... We've got to check the facts on those feelings. Otherwise, they're going to take over. You need some healthy masculine in order to do that, to step in to problem solve a little bit rather than just stir in the overwhelm of emotion. And that's not because our emotions need solving. I want to be clear. It's because if you're in excess of your feminine and you are drowning in your emotions, you need a life vest. And that life vest is going to be a healthy masculine that's going to come in and apply a little bit of reason and say, what's actually going on here? If you're in excess of the masculine, you need some tenderness and self-compassion. You need a healthy feminine to step in and provide some nurturance and community and maybe a little playtime or maybe a little stillness in which you learn how to tolerate the bad feelings 
rather than letting the masculine tell you that you've got to buck up and move on or you've got to distract yourself or you've got to go to work for 80 hours this week so that you forget all about the fact that you're an emotional being with emotions. Now, like I said before, sometimes depression is bigger than all of this. And sometimes taking these actions in the moment of depression is not going to work. And then you're going to feel like a failure, which is only going to perpetuate the depression. So take it easy on yourself. Lead with curiosity and with self-compassion. For me personally, and with clients that I've worked with, I have found that the best approach isn't to tackle this while I'm actually in an episode of depression, but rather before and after it. So I like to do a Monday morning quarterback kind of thing where I go back to the tape. I review the tape after the game. So in other words, after I'm out of a depressive episode, I reflect back on it and say, okay, what happened there? And was there anything that maybe I could have done to meet myself in there a little bit more healthily? Another important piece, I think, is knowing what your warning signs are that you're about to go into a depression and trying some of this stuff before the momentum picks up and you end up full-blown in a depressive episode. But the key is that these things take practice. So anytime we're talking about gaining insight or trying to build healthier coping skills, we want to do it at the times when we feel the strongest so that when we need it, we're already a little practice. We've built up some muscle memory. Like you don't just go run a marathon without training. You've got to exercise. You've got to build up those muscles. You don't just solve depression overnight. And, and like I said earlier, you know, my, de- my relationship with my depression has changed tremendously. It does not mean that I still don't get depressed. It just means that the way that I engage with it, the way that I manage it, the way that I understand it is so different that instead of it completely taking me out and making it impossible for me to function or taking me to a place that's very dark where I'm suicidal, I can actually find some beauty in it. It can actually help inform me that I need to be more me, that I have stepped away from my authenticity for whatever reason, and that now I'm feeling a major disconnect, not only with the world, but with myself. So I use it as information rather than say, well, I guess I'm the worst person ever. I'm going to go hide somewhere. So you can make depression a little bit less overwhelming. And one of the ways to do that is to create daily practices around balance and coping ahead for when the balance is going to get thrown. There's all sorts of lifestyle changes that uh, practitioners often recommend for depression. Like regular diet and exercise can help make depression more manageable on the regular. So can regular spiritual attunement and checking in with yourself and keeping your masculine and, and, and feminine a little bit more balanced. So there's more to follow on this. I'm going to be talking about this more. Um, and I really want to open this up for questions. If anybody has questions, if anybody um, is, is struggling with something in particular that I've talked about in this episode, to bring it to me. Let's talk about it. You can reach out to me uh, through Facebook or Instagram or email me at thehungryfeminine at gmail.com. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more. So stay tuned. Thank you for joining me here on the Feed the Feminine podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to explore more, you can subscribe for updates on upcoming episodes 
and head over to thehungryfeminine.com where you can join the mailing list, which will help keep you in the loop. Uh, I think it's been a while since I've sent out an email, so I should probably get on that. Uh, you can also follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Hungry Feminine. Thank you again for being here. I'll see you next time. <laughs>